Shalom Alechem. Shalom Alechem. Uh, good evening and welcome to Crossing Over. I am your host, Jessica Arianis, and uh, once again, Thursday Night Live with me is Dr. Stephen Pigeon. Good evening, Dr. Pigeon. Tonight's uh, message is titled, The Work of His Hands, specifically the working of the nefesh or the soul uh, into the perfecting of beauty. And so that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Dr. Pigeon will expound a little bit more in just a minute. I want to welcome you all and thank you as usual for your support, your prayers and your kindness and generosity within the last few shows that we've done. If in fact you have been blessed by what we are doing, I'm gonna ask a few things of you, if you will please go ahead and hit that like button, that's important. Also, if you have a comment, please leave one in the comment section. What it does is it helps the algorithms uh, to take this message out and to continue spreading it. And that's what we want. We want these messages to go out to those who are maybe um, crossing over or considering uh, crossing over from wherever it is that they are mentally, emotionally, physically. We want to be able to get this food out to those who are hungry. And that's really why we do what we do. Is it not, Dr. Pigeon? Absolutely, Jessica. And it's great to be with you again tonight on Thursday Night Live and crossing over and to be able to discuss what I think is going to be a very uh, important topic tonight about perfecting beauty in the soul or in the nefesh. And uh, so we're going to talk about that tonight. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun, frankly. Absolutely. As usual, get them. Thank you for all of our moderators in the chat room. If you'd like to join us in the chat, uh, chat go ahead and sign up and you can. Again, I'm going to ask that you like that button, share as often as you can, and uh, place your comments in the comments section. Dr. Pigeon, talk to me. What are we talking about tonight? Well, tonight, you know, uh, somebody wrote me earlier today, and uh, it was a very uh, heart-moving uh, email that I received uh, about, uh, really, it's about self-perception and about people, how they perceive themselves and the kinds of things that result from that and, and what happens to a person based upon their self-perception in this world. Uh, and really in terms of how it can destroy you. Uh, and it can also lead to a ton of other issues. It can lead to drug abuse or alcohol abuse or even suicide if you have, uh, if you have a bad self-perception. And of course, the self-perception is, is typically couched in the flesh. And so we're going to talk about what is the real beauty of a person tonight, which is the beauty of the soul. And we're going to talk about how the soul becomes beautified and what a difference it makes when the soul is made beautiful. And so that even those who look at themselves, you know, uh, Jessica, when we were at the conference, at the Waywalk conference, you know, there were some people there that were suffering from some pretty severe disabilities, you know, and, but they were, um, uh, they were very beautiful in, in my sight. And I know they're beautiful in the sight of Yah too. You know, and people ask, why was this child born blind? What was the sin of his mother or father? And Mashiach says to them, they were born blind to the glory of Yah the Father, to glorify Yah. And so we see that quite oftentimes what we don't understand can still nonetheless bring forth a beautiful soul, even in something that is not very attractive to us. So 
going to talk about that tonight. I think it's going to be a good subject. I agree. The matters of the heart. Uh, it's interesting that she would bring up this topic. I think it's vital uh, because our self, uh, you know, the world teaches self-esteem. And if you really look at those words, what you're thinking of is something that is esteeming self, which would then produce uh, sort of this uh, arrogant concept of self or to uh, puff up oneself or to elaborate oneself. Uh, but that's not what you're talking about here. What you're talking about is what Yahuwah says about the work of his hands, what Yahuwah says about his creation and his design and the fact that he has called everything tov when he created the man in the garden, he created him good. And what does it mean that he is initially good. He was created with the innate potential to be good in the sight of Yahuwah. And we think, if we think about the interaction that the humanity had with the serpent in the garden, it was through the lies of the enemy, those lies perpetrating against the potential of man to be good and thus corrupting his nature. But we also see Yeshua coming on the scene, Yahushua becoming the word, the word manifesting the beauty of Elohim, expressing who he is and how he moves and how he communicates to his creation. And it really is a beautiful design. And we see Yahushua bringing restoration, not only physically, mentally, emotionally, but also to the, per the paradigm of us being an initially good, what does that mean? I know there's an argument that says Yeshua says, Yahushua says, there is no, there's not one good, no, not even I. But we're not talking about that type of good where in fact we say, oh, I am righteous, right? We can only be righteous in, in Mashiach. But we're talking about the pattern, the beauty in which Yahuwah designed us, created us, and coming into that perspective again. Sure. And that's a big part of it. And it's not about Again, when we're talking about perfecting the beauty, it is something to look to. You know, the world you were talking about, self-esteem, you know. And, uh, you know, back in my old days, I used to follow, you know, teachings of self-esteem and, you know, the concepts of self-reliance and self-responsibility and, uh, and uh, I mean, what the other was self-respect. I mean, all those things are conceptually, they may be conceptually sound, but the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of need, right. for instance, which is taught at every university, is such a fraud, you know, because truthfully, when man is fully realized, if you cut away all the boundaries and everything else and you allow man to become fully realized, he becomes a murdering pirate criminal, mm -hmm. you know, because there's no boundaries whatsoever. And the realization of the flesh is as Paul teaches. And so when we talk about this idea of let's just release mankind to do what he will, which, as you know, is the opening tenet in the Satanic Bible, right? Do what thou wilt. Uh, that that opening tenet actually does not produce happiness. It does not produce joy. It does not produce self-respect. It does not produce self-reliance. Instead, it usually produces someone who is hopelessly and permanently addicted to sin yeah. and, and also a demon manifestation. You know, even in the last surah of the Quran, when you read about Muhammad in his life, and Muhammad did whatever he wanted, including, you know, murdering hundreds of people with his own sword, uh, taking a six-year-old as his wife, etc. Uh, you know, when you read the last surah in the Quran, 144, you read that he's infested by jinn, what they call jinn, which is another word for demons. Mm -hmm. And you we know, get he, the word genie. Yeah, well, we get genie, and he said, 
get these gins away from me, get them away because he was so infested and so plagued by them. Well, not surprising because there was no one to temper his self-realization or self-actualization to use Maslow's uh, terms. And we have a completely different uh, description and a completely different discussion in uh, the, the Brit Hadashah, uh, the teachings of Paul. We're going to talk about that tonight. And what those teachings bring to the table in terms of creating beauty in the soul and not ugliness and creating a life of peace and happiness and joy and not one of bitterness and anger and all those other things that can be found in a life that is quote unquote self-actualized. So with that being said, Jessica, what do you say we pray to open this discussion? Let's do it. What do you think? Let's do it. Yes, okay. please. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, um, come to you this evening with the great joy in mind that your word has been poured into us. May your Ruach lead our conversation tonight. Yes. Be with us to bless our discussion, carry us on the path that you would have us follow. And may our words speak what you desire us to speak. Let your words be heard and not our words, that uh, your name might be glorified here and throughout the world and where everyone is listening to this particular discussion. May your name be glorified in their hearts and may your hand of protection rise over all of us to cover us and to take care of us. We bless your name, Father. Bless your presence. We give thanks for what you have put in our lives. Even the trials and the tests for every mountain you have brought us over. For every trial you have seen us through, we give you praise in the name of Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Hallelujah. Dr. Pigeon, you're going to uh, discuss a little bit more. You have a PowerPoint here. I'm not sure if you're going to share it, but before you do, I just want to uh, mention Psalm 139.14, which is the verse that came to my mind as you brought this to my attention. It says, I will praise thee, O Yahuwah, my Elohim. So he's speaking to the psalmist. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. Oh, to be restored to that place, Dr. Pigeon, where our soul is no longer being lured, seduced, what is it, courted by this world because of the desires of the flesh, because of the lust therein, but that we would desire true beauty, which is to be in the sight of Yahuwah, to be washed by the water of his word, to be nurtured by his esteem, his esteem, because he has placed a crown upon our heads, because he has taken our ashes and he has uh, given us beauty, that exchange, he has exchanged those ashes with beauty. Dr. Pigeon, Mm, that's what a good is, word, Jessica. Yes. What is this that we're talking about? What is this? Yeah, that's a very good word that you've just brought up there, Jessica, to exchange our ashes for beauty. Now, you know, when you talk about, when you look at a tree, okay, if you were to look at a tree in the middle of the winter and it's a deciduous tree, it has no leaves, it has no fruit, and you look at it and you think, that tree's dead. You know, it's ugly, it's dead. There's nothing there. But that very same tree, when it gets into full bloom and it's full of fruit, and, and maybe the flowers are blooming first, you know, when you get the apple blossoms, you know, coming out and the cherry blossoms coming out. And then you look at the tree and it's full of fruit. It's a thing that is wondrous to behold. It's a thing of beauty because when the tree is bearing fruit, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's life-giving, life-sustaining, and 
it is vitally alive at the time it's doing it, right? That particular tree is vitally alive when it has a full crop of fruit in its branches. And so we're going to talk about this tonight. So when we talk about perfecting beauty, let's begin with some of these ideas that if you develop these in your soul, you will perfect beauty. Now, one other thing I wanted to say before we get to this is that when you look at the pop culture, the pop culture teaches you these impossibly crazy, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call it they're irrational and bordering on the insane things. And, you know, these are part of life, you know, when you're told, when a woman is told that, gee, your makeup is going to make you happy, or gee, this relationship is going to make you happy, or look, these new shoes are going to make you happy, or when a guy is told this car right here, this muscle car is going to make you great, or, you know, there's more to life than a new car and a big house. There's a boat, there's a plane, you know, there's lots of stuff you can add to the equation that the pop culture tells you is going to bring you happiness. Now, a lot of people take the position, well, rich people are never happy. And that's not true. Some rich people are happy because there are rich people that Yah has blessed with that wealth because he's blessed them with that wealth. It's up to his decision as to who he's going to bless with wealth and who he doesn't bless with wealth. It's not really up to you what's going to happen in that regard. Now, some people who say, well, I'm not going to rely on whatever blessing Yah has picked up for me in wealth. I'm going to create my own wealth. And they do so by essentially turning life into a zero-sum game. I'm going to take from you in order to put in my pocket. And, you know, believe me, I used to work as a business lawyer, and I met many, many people who did exactly that. And, in fact, I had to repent from that because we used to represent clients that stole millions and millions of dollars from other people. And then we would defend them in court to keep them from going to jail. And I had to repent from that because I couldn't do that any longer. And I can tell you that when you talk about this kind of thing, you know, you see people that I had a good friend who is a money broker. And we talked about this, you know, when you die, you're sitting on your deathbed and you realize on your deathbed, okay, none of this stuff is coming with me. All my jewelry, my big house, you know, my, my vacation home, all of this other stuff that I own and you know that it, that is accumulated unto me, none of it's coming with me. What is coming with you? The guy you stabbed in the back, the guy you ripped off, the contract you broke, you know, the the money you took unlawfully or illegally, you know, that stuff is what's coming back. And maybe you the did it. The debt you accrued, accrued. The debt you accrued, yeah. And and that stuff comes back. And when you think about, well, look. I, it was it was him or me, and I won the battle in court. Yeah, he was destroyed. His wife committed suicide. His kids all became drug addicts and ended, ended up in prison. But that's just the way it went, okay? I can sleep with myself at night, all right? But when you're on your deathbed and you want to repent and you can't go back to that person and say, I am sorry for what I did to you, you know, and, and seek forgiveness for that, you can't do that. You can't do it because you're on your deathbed and you can't get out of that bed. And you never know how short that deathbed may be. For some people, they look up and it's two seconds. For other people, it's three, four, five years. But the point is, is that the thing that you do take with you is you take the, the harm that you did to other people with you to accumulate that wealth. Now, it doesn't mean that every wealthy person has done that, but many have. 
And you also see, like, for instance, we know in the pop culture, I mean, look at the famous people. How many famous people have committed suicide in their 20s, right? Because they can't deal with the curse that is fame. And it is a curse. And, you know, they think that they're going to find happiness in an extremely large home. Now, you know, my wife and I, we toured Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt mansion in North Carolina. It's called Biltmore. And I think it has 230 bedrooms. And it has a dining room table that will seat 75 people. And it has, you know, this, I don't know, it's got 100 bathrooms. I mean, it goes, the list goes on and on and on and on. It's huge. And when Vanderbilt didn't come home, when Albert Vanderbilt didn't come home, I'm not going to say he died because that's another conspiracy theory. But when he didn't come home, his wife said, okay, well, what am I going to do? Well, she ended up moving into the servants' quarters where it was somewhat comfortable, right? There were only nine bedrooms there and, and its own kitchen and its own this, right? Because she couldn't deal with living in a 234-room house. Now, maybe some people think they can. Oh, I could live in that kind of establishment. But you'd be surprised how cozy and comfortable life can be in something that's not like that, right? The beauty of a well-designed, small, but comfortable house is also something that Yah can provide to you. So when you look at these things and you see the pop culture teaching you more is better, richer is better, more famous is better, and then you see the kinds of problems that there's companies that culture, and you ask yourself the question, well, is my vanity good enough, right? Do I look good enough? Are my clothes sharp enough? This kind of thing. And you're weighing yourself by how you look in the mirror instead of weighing yourself by how you look in the heavenlies. Two different things. Hmm. Now, for the young men out here, and there's, you know, and I'm talking to them, I know lots of young men because my son is 18 and my son-in-law is 21 and so on, so on and so forth. You know, and, you know, and these young men, you know, they, they like to chase after what they call eye candy. And I've told them repeatedly, I've sat down at the dinner table and I said, look, when you're out there and you're in the quote unquote mating game and you're looking to meet someone, you need to look into the eyes of the person and see what is there because the eyes reveal the soul. This is where you find the beauty. If you're not looking there, you're going to get snared by the world of vanity. So becomes a very important point. So what does the soul look like? Well, for many people, the soul is, you know, in the hospital. Now, let's talk truthfully about it, Jessica. For many people, the soul is in the hospital. The soul has been injured. It's got a broken leg. It's got some caved in ribs. The soul may have some, you know, former drug addiction associated with it. The soul's got this, the soul's got that, it's got blemishes, it's got sins, it's got this, it's got that. You have all these things in the soul. And of course, with the blood of Mashiach, this is washed clean. The soul is washed clean. But when you talk about the soul being washed clean from Mashiach, we've talked about this many times. You have the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. Yes, we have the life. What about the way? So, when we start, when we talk about perfecting the beauty of the soul, let's talk about some of these elements that you can work on to take this clean soul and build beauty into it, these elements of beautiness, okay? Yes. So you were mentioning a few things, and I think um, to sum it up, what we're looking at is a culture 
that is vested in hedonism. I mean, they are programmed uh, to seek pleasure, specifically uh, from the ages of, you know, 16 uh, until they settle down. And of course, they are also chasing this American dream, which really has become a nightmare. But I don't think that they are uh, aware that there are virtues uh, that are required in order to sustain such things. You know, someone said, well, I know rich people. I have a friend that said, well, I know rich people that are happy. And sure, that may be the case, but that's not the norm. And, you know, my daughter one time, we live in Pasadena, suburbs of Pasadena, Los Angeles. And Dr. Pigeon, just literally maybe 15 minutes away from you, you have old money, very wealthy, wealthy people. And of course, I live on the other side, 15 minutes away from that wealth. <laughs> and it's just ironic, right? So I'm like literally 15 minutes away from the wealth. But literally, you have these mansions, magnificent. I mean, I'm talking about money that came from Europe here. Uh, it's not like they, they've, you know, in, um, discovered their, their wealth here. Uh, so it's old, old money. It goes way back. But these houses, magnificent, glorious houses. And we walk, we go walking through the neighborhoods. My daughter said to me one time, mommy, why can't we have a house like that? I said, well, you can barely, <laughs> you can barely clean the house we have. That's <laughs> like 800 square feet. I mean, come on. And so uh, one day she was saying, well, still, you know, we can hire people. I said, well, what's the point? Here's my, here's my point, Dr. Pigeon. You know, she brought up Moses. She brought up Moses and how Moses was considered to be a very wealthy man and other individuals who were considered to be wealthy. And I said, no, you see, you have the wrong idea. You're thinking with a Western mindset. Specifically, Moses had, he wasn't necessarily, it wasn't that he was a wealthy, excessively wealthy man. What he had was what he needed to accomplish and to sustain all that he had. He had many people to feed. So Yah gave him lots of food. He had many rooms because he had many people. In other words, Yah gave him what he needed. Yah gave him what he required. And so I see that quite often. You know, if I had 15 children, then of course, you know, I need a bigger property. I have one child living with me. I need two bedrooms. That's pretty much it. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So it's, oh, it's yeah. excess. It's the difference exactly. between what you need and what is excess. And again, you have that hedonism. But what's interesting, Dr. Pigeon, is you're talking about virtue and looking for virtue in one another. And what does that virtue look like? According to your uh, PowerPoint here, you start off by talking about uh, temperance, right? Developing that temperance, which is a discipline. Yeah. Now, what exactly does that look like? Well, discipline is such an interesting thing, Jessica, because when you talk about discipline, you know, you're talking about limits. Okay, setting boundaries, if you will, and disciplining the behavior. Now, we talked about Maslow a little bit about how Maslow says you have to self-actualize and basically do everything you want. That's not what Scripture talks about. Scripture talks about setting limits, disciplining the order. Now, let me give you an example. You might discipline your garden. That let's say you're growing some, uh, you're growing some lettuce, you're growing some radishes, you're growing some peppers. Okay, and you've got your furrows out there, and you've got your rows, and you got planted. And then you go out there and you see the weeds, right? So you're going to discipline this growing by, first of all, you're going to take out the weeds. And then you may thin out, you may thin out your radishes. You may thin out the lettuce. So you take the weaker plants away so that the, the more healthy plants are going to grow and grow into a larger plant, right? So this is a disciplining of the garden. You're disciplining the garden such that you might have, uh, that you might have a greater abundance. Now, we saw this in the culture that rose in Victorian England when England was becoming, you know, an empire that, that upon which the sun never set. And that was that 
you had this discipline of marriage. Now, when you bring in the discipline of marriage, you say, well, marriage is between one man and one woman. And then you hold to that by whatever means you have to in order to discipline the society into that functionality. What happens when you do that is you end up with a very prosperous social order. That is to say, uh, in the United States, where we had this functionality going on, and even during the Great Depression, the 20s and the 30s, it was not uncommon to see families with 9, 10, 12, 13, 14 children in one family, right? Because of this discipline of the marriage that was going on, we had a prosperity that built the nation. Now, since then, we have replaced the discipline of let's discipline ourselves to this marriage functionality, and let's skip the discipline and bring in abortion instead, bring in birth control instead, that allows us to skip the discipline and then do whatever we want. When we miss the discipline, we end up with 70 million aborted babies, right? And so, the, and, and as a result, we have a birth rate that's about 1.6. It's a non-sustainable birth rate. It would take 150 years for us to restore our population given the birth rate, which of course is why the doors have been open for immigration as long as they have because the powers that be know that we cannot sustain this nation with a plunging demographic. It's the same thing in Europe. They all know they can't sustain Europe with the absolutely catastrophic death knell that is the demographics, uh, the demographic disposition in Europe, where you have a birth rate that hovers between 0.8 in Russia in, and 1.1 in Spain or Germany. I mean, these are, these are death spirals. For these people so of course immigration so and this has to do with the fact that you didn't introduce discipline now discipline is what discipline is the practice of a disciple it comes from the word disciple discipline disciple and so it's a question of what you do and what you don't do okay it's a question of what you do and what you don't do all right so what to do now we have this passage out of second timothy 222 and it says here, flee also youthful lusts. Okay, now, you know, when you're a young person, and I was talking with somebody about this yesterday. You know, a lot of guys in the military, 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, those are the years, the big years of apostasy. You know, you might have grown up in a faith-believing family, and your family saying, this is right, this is wrong. You know, believe, 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 pray, trust, believe, all these things that you get in a spiritual family. But you turn 18, and you know what? You know better than those ignoramuses called mom and dad, right? And so <laughs> as a result, you go out and you do your own thing. Ah, those people don't know anything I know. We live in a completely different world than what they lived in. And so I've got the right to make my own decisions. And then of course you make, you know, 15 years of mistakes. And then you come back and say, gee, what was going on there? I guess maybe my parents knew something, yeah. But in the meantime, you have these three or four years, sometimes six years of this heavy apostasy that is just completely breaking, broken away from the faith. These are the young men that are sent out to fight wars, right? That the young men that are that are told, you know, you obey orders no matter what we tell you to do. And even like the Nazi Germans, they put them on, um, what they put them on, uh, uh, some kind of uh, methamphetamine and strychnine. That's yeah. right. And they had them, they had them, you know, had them, you know, completely amped, uh, wired and, right. and had them totally amped. And then you go out there and kill them. Pretty soon they're so amped and they're so mean and they're so psychotic, they kill right. anything. And, uh, you know, so this kind of thing. And so you have this apostasy among those young people and then they're out dying in battle and their soul is lost, you know. So the youthful lust tell you, follow these things that the world tells you is all good for you, right? 
And all of these things that the world is telling you, the pop culture is telling you, and believe me, I see the sales job all the time. You know, the television programs, the Netflix programs, all of this stuff, they sell the same bill of goods over and over and over again, right? They tell you this story that everyone's promiscuous. I mean, that's premise number one. Everyone's promiscuous. Everybody knows somebody who's in a same-sex marriage. Right. There's all, you know, there's always some trans uh, transgendered person who's entering into the fray now, who's totally normal and and who, who is now here in this situation. You know, and you have all of these things that are all presented over and over again, and everybody's an adulterer, and everybody's, you know, and they just keep presenting this, presenting this. And when you're a young person, you don't have any hard data to show that, gee, not everyone's doing that. You don't have that hard data. You don't know because you're a young person. You've got a year, two years of experience with an adult mind. And you're you're under the impression that with a year or two of experience, you can somehow grok what the overall trends are and you can't. So it says, flee these things. Don't do these things. Okay, well, if you're not going to do them, what do you do? Okay, well, here's the tip, right? Follow righteousness, belief, love, peace with them that call on El Yahweh out of a what? pure heart. Now, this is very difficult for a young person who wants to taste all the food on the table. Hard to maintain a pure heart. But I can tell you that when you talk about righteousness, what is righteousness? Well, you got the word, you got a clue right there. Right. Right. You have this word that opens up right. Righteousness. Okay. It begins with the word right. What does that mean? Well, it means it's right. It means it's the right thing to do. When I was a kid, People would say, does that person have common sense, right? There were two things that they used to talk about. Having common sense, which I didn't have the slightest idea what they meant, and knowing right from wrong. And it was this general concept. That kid doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong. Well, uh, you know, as a lawyer, you're thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of transient, isn't it? What do you mean by these terms, right and wrong? What do you mean by the phrase common sense? Okay. But we know now that right and wrong, knowing the difference between right and wrong, is should be poured into your heart by the Ruach HaKodesh, right? That he will pour his Torah into your heart, mind, and soul, that you might know intrinsically right and wrong. And so we do know. We do know. I mean, look, if you walked outside and you saw your neighbor torturing a dog or a cat, do you know instinctively that that's right or wrong? Yeah. Sure. Sure you do. Even your five-year-old knows it's right or wrong instinctively, right? It's the same thing when you hear some guy screaming and he's beating some woman across the street. You know that that's wrong. There is not, if you were in an apartment building and you had eight apartments and the guy in number seven was beating his wife until she was screaming, all other seven apartments in that building would know what that it was wrong. They'd all know. They'd know it in their heart, Right. It's the same thing, right? Go ahead. So you know what's interesting is that um, so you bring this up, and again, it does it it ties back into that that idea that we're warring against the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh, and the way that I've always seen it is the appetite, which is one of the main reasons why I went back to school to study uh, nutrition and dietetics because I wanted to understand how the physical body uh, thrives off of physical food and what compels it. And so we, we do see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life warring against the works of the, of the Ruach or the inspiration of the Ruach. What's interesting is 
that you bring up this word to flee from these things in our youth. And what comes to my mind is Joseph. I get the picture of Joseph when he was about, what, 20 years old and he was sold into slavery and he had an encounter with Potiphar's wife. And there we see an example of this temptation uh, to do what the flesh desires. Yet he ran from her. He fled from her as though he was fleeing for his life. We also know that Joseph was taught in the tent. So that means that his mother had raised him up in a virtuous way. And then you say, well, how do we attain these virtues? How do we flee from those things? If we, if we look at sin as though it's crouching at the door, um, waiting to consume us, then how is it that we combat the works of our flesh or those longings of the heart. Well, you say to me then, according to 2 Timothy 2.22, that it's these elements, these virtues, belief, love, peace. And, and what I also want to add to that, Dr. Pigeon, is that these are virtues. These are the rudiments of our faith. These are virtues such that when we find ourselves in situations where we are being slandered, where we're being uh, tempted, where we're being accosted, where we are being bruised, crushed, uh, discouraged, guess what? It's these virtues, which by the way, virtue means power. It is the power to endure such things because we are allowing love to prevail or we are allowing our faith to overtake our circumstances or oh. we are allowing the shalom, the peace of mind to that rules over our understanding to accomplish Yah's will. So again, it's these so virtues. True. So this is the power that Yah gives to us so that we can endure and while so we are fleeing from those lusts. Yeah. 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 And, you know, because when you talk about fleeing from the lust, you know, when you look at that kind of thing and, you know, I, I mean, I could tell you like if what's going on right now in the modern world, of course, that state after state after state is decriminalizing or legalizing recreational marijuana. And a lot of people are saying, well, if the state's legalized it, it's okay. And, and, you know, it, it harkens back to when Bill Clinton was being, you know, scandalous in his behavior. And oh, so many young people said, well, if the president can do it, I can do it. And that really harkened back to JFK when JFK was notoriously having adulterous affairs on Jackie on Jackie Kennedy with one after another and finally culminating in Marilyn Monroe making their adultery obvious by singing happy birthday, Mr. President on television. And that really opened up an era of adultery that for a generation became repulsive. I mean, I can tell you that a lot of the so-called counterculture that came up out of that was reviled. They were revolted by the adultery of that generation represented by what JFK was doing. And, and again, not to slam JFK, he was a great president and all that, but he did bring in a culture of adultery. And so when you see these kinds of things, and now we have this culture coming in, this culture of, you know, uh, where people are taught, to, you know, all these various sexual expressions, and they're taught, gee, marijuana is fine. It's okay. You know, it's prohibited for you high schoolers. But, you know, once you turn 21, you know, smoke your brains out, right? Or I don't know how they take marijuana nowadays. I never do that. But I can tell you that when you're looking at this kind of thing, you have to ask yourself the question, how am I going to be able to resist the, 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 the youthful lust of the flesh, right? And Part of it is that when you're talking about the flesh, if it, if it is appealing to the flesh and not to the Ruach, then there's something not right about it. It doesn't mean that you don't live in the flesh because you are in the flesh. There's no question. And the flesh, when it was originally built, as you opened our conversation tonight, was good, right? It was good. 
But when you talk about these things here, righteousness, doing what is right, not doing what is wrong, increasing your belief. You know, when we talk about increasing the belief, this is one of the blessings of the Et Sefer. I mean, I got to tell you, we started working on the project. We, of course, we've had to edit the book over and over and over and over and over again. And I know I personally have edited the book cover to cover eight times. And when, when and the more I read it, the more, the stronger my belief becomes. My belief becomes more and more increased day by day by day by day as I begin to understand what is the nature of the kingdom, what is the nature of the creator, and that we have a creator who both hears and speaks and who understands. He holds the tears of our heart in his hand. He sees all, understands all, and his mercy endures forever. So, you know, with that understood, when you understand, we have that kind of belief, then the tragedies that happen in life, and believe me, there's lots of them, you know, well, for every up that you have in life, there's going to be a cascading down. It's just like that roller coaster. You come up, then you go back down, right? High and lows. Highs and lows. And it's not a, and, and the character of a person is defined by how they deal with the lows. And we're going to show in this passage what some of these characters are. Now, what you don't want to do when you're talking about perfecting beauty is avoid the lusts of the flesh. And now Paul talks about what are the what are the lusts of the flesh? He talks about this in Galatians 5.19, right? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, uncleanness, right? Now, uncleanness is a lot of things, right? But it does include, uh, you know, uncleanness is, you know, well, I'm, I won't get into it. It has to do well, with, I, go ahead. Well, it has to do with a lot of things. I mean, emissions and all sorts of other things. But guess what, guys? We are also considered unclean when we defile our temples by putting in it food, the not foods. I call it not foods. So substances that are not food. Yahuwah is the one who determines what is food and what is not, not the FDA uh, and not your most popular <laughs> culture chefs, um, foodies, as you will. But they do not determine or dictate what is something. Yahuwah does. And he has determined what is food and what is not. So when you put something in your mouth, although it may be meat, it may be flesh, uh, it may be a natural herbal plant. Um, somebody had made a, a, a good comment, um, a comment, a good argument stating that there are poisonous plants that Yahuwah has made that are not for ingestion. And if we were to ingest them, we would die. And so not just because something is made natural does not mean, what does Paul say? I'm at liberty to do all things, but not everything is a benefit to me. So with yeah, that being said, can, guess what, Dr. P? We can defile ourselves. We can defile our temples yeah. by putting in not foods. <laughs> Yeah. unclean foods yeah and also i mean the temple is defiled with you know smoke and you know anything that's that's actively things. killing the body right if it's sure. killing the body then it's not clean and it renders the body unclean right and so and then lasciviousness you know and of course we, nobody wants to talk about lust and covetousness you know when you break up thou shalt not covet people go okay i don't have the slightest idea what the word covet means but i'm not going to do it but they don't know what it means we in the Sefer said, let's tell you what it means. Thou shalt not lust. Okay? Now, you know what that means in the modern world. And that's what covetousness is. This is lasciviousness, right? And then how about idolatry? Well, the works of the flesh are idolatry. Now, it's so easy, so easy in this country to get caught up in idolatry. Because idolatry is promoted every single day, every single hour. It's called advertising. 
you should idol this, you should idolize this, you should idolize that. And I don't care if it's a country western song saying, saying idolize your international harvester tractor, or if it's somebody else trying to get you to idolize Alexis, or if it's somebody else talking about this beautiful Rolex watch, or whatever the idolatry may be. I mean, there's, believe me, there's I, idols at every corner. And so idolatry, and this is something bowing down and worshiping constitutes idolatry. But interestingly enough, Paul talks about idolatry. He talks about sexual orientation as a form of idolatry. So like if you meet somebody, like I'll give you an example. It's one thing if you know somebody who's a vegan, right? They're, and so you've got this vegetarian, but they're also vegan. Okay, it's one thing to be a vegan. Okay, you're a vegan. So when you go into a restaurant, you have to deal with your vegan appetite, and you have to tell the waiter or waitress, look, I'm vegan, so I can't have this, I can't have that. So what do you have, right? Because most menus are hostile. But if you're parading around with vegan stamped on your forehead, and every conversation opens up, well, I'm a vegan, therefore I can't drink that coffee, or whatever the situation is. You know, at some point, you're moving that food uh, choice to a position of idolatry. Now, it's the same thing with a lot of homosexuality. You know, uh, somebody comes in and says they're defining themselves as gay. Why do I have to define you based upon your sexual preference? Can't I understand you as an intellectual or can't I understand you as somebody who drives a truck or can I understand you as somebody who's a great cook? Oh, no, 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 no. I insist you understand me only as gay. That is preference. That's absolutely right. That's idolatry. That is idolatry. You're idolizing your sexual preference. It's idolatry. And that's what Paul calls it. Okay. He says it's a form of idolatry. Now, what about witchcraft? Right? A lot of people say, well, we could delve into witchcraft. Well, no, you can't. No, you can't. And when you talk about witchcraft, uh, you know, I could talk much more about this, but when you talk about witchcraft, witchcraft is consumed with things like incantation, conjuring, and communing with familiar spirits. Okay. That's essentially what witchcraft is. All right. How about hatred? Well, you know, look, it's easy to hate. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was I came through this in my prayer time this morning. You know, you think about the people who say, you know, that person should be locked up and they should throw away the key. You know, we just watched a, a special about these five uh, African-American boys. Oh, did, you, did you see it? Did you see it? Yes, yes twice. Yeah, and when they, it's called when they see us. Yeah, when they see us, and oh. and that, that one boy was what fourteen? He was fourteen. Stunning movie. And they were using the most improper police techniques to coerce confessions out of these kids in violation of Miranda and everything else. Oh, well, we're just lie, 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 lie because the Supreme Court said cops can lie, you can't lie, you go to prison for lying, but the right. police can lie to you in their interrogation because they've been given permission. And you have a yeah, yeah, and you have a vengeful prosecutor who's like, okay, I see five black kids here who were wilding in Central Park. Therefore, I want all five of them to have felony records and fill the prison. Now we all know that America has the most has the highest prison population of any nation on earth. That's not per capita. That's an actual number. It is the highest prison population of any country on earth, including communist China and Russia. All right. Now, are you still with me, Jessica? Jessica, are you still with me? I think I may have lost Jessica. I'm not quite sure if I'm still on uh, on the line or not. 
Uh, but I'm going to continue as if I am, and I can see if I can get her to rejoin me here. There you go. Are you still here, Jessica? Are you? You're just muted. You're good. You're okay, good. All right. I went to get okay. some water. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Okay. But you know, when you when you look at this situation with these people in prison, okay. So we have this highest population on Earth that is in prison, and they serve some of the longest sentences on Earth. Another statistic that goes unnoticed. And you have a huge disproportion in terms of the number of African-Americans and Latino brothers and sisters that are in prison compared to the percentage in the population. And the vast majority of those people who are killed on the streets uh, in, if, you know, in the context of violent crime and so forth are disproportionately represented by those races, by those, by those categories of American uh, citizens. Okay. So, when you see this, I mean, I can tell you there is a very quiet vendetta that says we have to make sure that every African-American male has a felony conviction tagged to him. Because if we don't, that person could rise to become the president or that person could rise to become a successful banker or that person could rise to become a successful businessman or a powerful person in the community. And so there is an underlying agenda to tag African-American youth, black uh, men, with a felony conviction. Or they might discover that they are Israel. <laughs> yeah, well, now they are discovering that they're Israel. And this is, you know, and now what can you say? You're going to sit here and say that, that, that the house of Judah is three-fifths human? You're going to sit here and say the house of Dan is three-fifths human? The house of Issachar is three-fifths human? You're going to say that? You can't say it, and they should need to be prohibited from saying it. But when, when I looked at that, when I looked at that case, you know, I do criminal work. I know how many people are just, the average person comes in, and is, is thinking to himself, I never did that. I never did that. I never did that. And the prosecutor says, you either take my plea bargain and plead guilty to what I have on the table, or I'm going to hammer you. And I'll hammer you. I had a prosecutor tell me this guy was in violation of his restraining order because he sent a letter to his wife, an email saying, I love you, dropped off the child support check, and dropped off the car seat. The prosecutor said that's three violations of the restraining order. I'm putting your client in prison for a year at 58 years old. Or you drop your argument. Or you drop your argument. Now, prosecutors, in when this country was formed, were formed on the basis of prosecutorial discretion. That is, prosecutors are supposed to look at a case, and when they've got nothing where the facts aren't justified, they say, we don't have enough case here. Send those kids away. That's not the attitude of prosecutors right now. I have a case in front of me. I need a 100% conviction record. Get it no matter what. And I don't care what the circumstances are. Don't care what the facts are. Don't care what the justice is. Even if we have to dummy up evidence and have the police lie on the stand and hide exculpatory evidence, we're going to do it until we get a conviction. Period. Now, there are exceptions, but I can tell you the exception is a small exception it's not the rule well it's a, it's a billion dollar industry <laughs> and it's interesting because in the book of revelations as well as the book of uh, isaiah it talks about the system um the one that is accused of of her pomp and it is this entity riding the beast the system and then it goes and it and it gives charts. There's like a, a list of items uh, that she is uh, responsible for soliciting. And of the items, the this 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 
this charge that she has. It, 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 I want to find it in Revelations, but it says, you know, and, and her, her frankincense and her myrrh and her scarlet and all these things that she's soliciting. And among the list is the souls of men. Souls and of so men. I've always seen this, Dr. Pigeon, as though the, the system is a flesh merchant. You know, it is merchandising the, the souls of men. And, and this is really the pomp of this system that we consider. You know, there's another documentary. It's called, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called 13th or the 13th, the 13th Amendment by Ava. I can't remember Duvonay. I think uh, Ava Duvonay. I think she's the one that did this last movie, um, the documentary. But it's absolutely riveting. Uh, another documentary that I would I would highly recommend uh, that you watch, and it really does shine a light exactly on what you're saying about the indigenous people, specifically the Hispanic community as well as the uh, African American community, the Native um, American uh, community. And so she does shine a light on the corruption and the corruption that's embedded in its desire to maintain wealth by soliciting the souls of men and keeping them incarcerated. Right. And so when, when we're talking about hatred here, when I hear people say, you know, where that guy's concerned, he should be locked up and they should throw away the key. Okay. He should be locked up and they should throw away the key. All right. Well, if that's the comment that's going to make that you're going to come out of your mouth, suppose that Yah were to bind that in heaven. And that was the extent of your mercy when you faced the judgment in front of the white throne. When you talk about when you talk about these people going in for an offense and you're saying, OK, now there are some offenses when you're talking about somebody who's willfully killed somebody. This is a different issue or some of the very serious, egregious, what they call capital offenses. But there are many, many, many offenses for which a guy is getting 20 years in prison because he failed to get his his uh, license renewed for the third time in a row. Or, you know, I, I, that's not a good example. But there are other examples where people have been sentenced to enormous amounts of time. And now when you think about 20 years, I want you to think about this for a minute. That guy should be locked up and the key should be thrown away. You give somebody 20 years when they're 15 years old and they don't see the light of day for until they're 35. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, at 35 years old, what skill set do they have? They do prison laundry pretty well. You know, that's about it. Right. And so, you know, I, I, look, I know I may I may be sounding like a bleeding heart here, but I'm just saying that when you talk about hatred, the hatred for the criminal and, and I'll tell you point blank. I mean, I am somebody, you know, our, our law office is engaged in prison ministry. You know, Vitaly Muzienko has been visiting prisons for 12 years now. We actually provide flyers from in the Ukrainian language into prisons in Eastern Europe talking about the gospel message. And. You know, he went into he went into the juvenile detention facility, and he went in to see these kids, and he said he he went in there and he could he could not bear being there, because he would be he would come in there and they would have kids locked up in solitary confinement. I mean, fifteen year olds, fourteen year olds, who are crying and calling out for mommy, 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 right? The kids and we have them locked up behind barbed wire, right? Doctor Pigeon, I was one of those children. They grew up in a system because I was neglected. And I know exactly how brutal that system can be. I was incarcerated at the age of 12 uh, because I found myself being um, physically beaten 
by a group of adults um, and women and men who were beating me. And as a, as a result, I, I, I was defending myself. And uh, because I was under the influence, I ended up uh, becoming, um, well, I got arrested. And then I didn't understand my rights. I was 12. <laughs> Dr. Pigeon was 12. Right. And nobody was there to advocate for me or defend me. So I ended up uh, serving nine, nine months in the juvenile hall system in isolation and in solitude. I had no roommate made. I was isolated wow. by myself in an environment for nine months at 12 years old. So I know what it is to experience injustice. I've seen it over and over and over and over again, again from the age of nine until the age of 16. I was in hundreds of institutions and foster homes. I know exactly how cruel that system can be. Well, Praise you who I'm here. Advocate for those who can't like, advocate for themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Has given me a voice and restored back to me beauty, which leads me to your next slide, which is talking about meekness. So you're yeah. saying hatred is something that we can actually have housed deep within us. And how then is it that we relinquish that? This is such a, a deep, this is really a, um, overwhelming emotion because hatred in the Bible is considered uh, similar to death or equal to de uh, murder. I'm sorry. Yeah, murder. murder. Yeah, it's the same as murder. murder. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how is it then that what spirit must come upon us then in order for us to relinquish that spirit of vindication, self-righteous, you know, vindicate me. How do we do that, Dr. P? Well, let's Dr. ask the question, what did Yahusha do, yeah, right? W-D-Y-D. What did he actually do? Well, here it says here in Matthew. My favorite verse of all time. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is meekness, right? Meekness is gentleness and humility. And oftentimes you see in this passage, for I am gentle and humble of heart. I am meek and lowly in heart. This is Mashiach talking, who is meek and lowly in heart. He is gentle and humble in heart. And this is something, I mean, you know, I can tell you when I was a young man, I mean, you know, I was mean and violent. It was like, hey, I'm not putting up with that. You know, you want to get it on? Let's do it. You know what I mean? That kind of attitude. And it took me a long time to master this idea of gentleness and humbleness. And the idea of being gentle to one another is a very, very big deal. And you know, that, like they used to say, you catch a lot more uh, bees with honey than you do with vinegar, right? And it's the same kind of thing, a gentle tone, gentle conversation, and humility, humbleness, lowliness, and meekness, meekness, quietness, right? But take a look at the next slide here. We talk about developing meekness, okay? This is from Micah, and this is my baptism verse, actually. And it's a very important verse. This is a very important instruction. I mean, you know, people want to talk about the animal sacrifices, the animal sacrifice, the animal sacrifices. But listen to what Micah says here. Wherewith shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before the high Elohim? Shall I come before him with ascending smoke offerings, you know, with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Shall I put veal on the fire? You know, is that what he's asking, right? Shall I put the, the, the calves a year old on the fire, the ascending smoke offering? Will Yahweh be pleased with a thousand rams? You know, like Solomon, he sacrificed 10,000 bulls, you know. Will Yah be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Oh, well, here, how about we bring in, let's bring in 10,000 barrels of oil. 
and we'll make this our offering. We'll set it. We'll torch it up at the Burning Man festivities there, and we'll we'll set off ten thousand barrels of oil as a rising smoke offering, right? Then he goes on to ask the question: Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now this was a question. He didn't ask that out of a clear blue sky. People were sacrificing their firstborn to Molech, sacrificing their children in the fire as a sin offering for their transgression, thinking that by sacrificing their firstborn child, they would be redeemed for the sins in their life. Now you think about what kind of errant teaching that was. What does he say here? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what Yahweh requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your Elohim. Now, I'll tell you, this business of, again, let's go back just a minute to the prison system. We're talking about but to do justly. You know, when I deal with juries in a criminal trial, most juries are pathetically immoral. They get on a jury, they're so afraid that they're going to be persecuted by the same arbitrary and corrupt state that's persecuting the guy that's the defendant, that they just, okay, whatever the judge says, convict, convict, convict. The judge told me convict, that's what I'm going to do, right? Because they're not going to stand up at all. And there's another kind of juror that's like, hey, this is my chance to really punish somebody for all the bitterness that I've had in my life. I could do a lot of damage to this guy right here, and it's legal it's legal yeah let's toss him into a jail cell and throw away the key right and so jury juries are fundamentally immoral in this country and they're lazy so they don't do justice what do you think about when the governor of alabama gets fined eight million dollars for failing to keep his private prisons full enough what do you think about that private prisons making a profit, selling souls, right? And then, so you need to do justice, and that means to right things in your own life. You know, when, you, when you've harmed somebody, you've got to take care of it. You have to act justly. You have to act fairly. You have to have a sense of even weights and balances. Don't put your thumb on the scale and start cheating people. You know, and I know there's a lot of people that do that everywhere they work. They put that thumb on the scale, and they cheat. You get that little extra buck, that little extra dollar, whatever. They do it, you know? Yeah, I'll leave that off the table. Okay. <laughs> I, I was I was going to say, I mean, Jessica, look, a lot of people have talked about separate publishing group. And they say, well, look, you're a, you know, you're run, you're a for-profit company. Yeah. But we produce the highest quality book we can produce, and then we sell it at a price that allows us to reprint it and to be able to ship it all over the world. I mean, that's worth the, that's the price we sell, at, at which we sell it. There are other outfits out there that say, oh, our book is free with a donation, right? It's free, except not free. It's free with a donation, except not free. It's free, except it's not free. And you need to get your donation up to a certain level, yeah, including, including shipping and handling, which happens to include the cost of our book, that's in the shipping and handling. And then you got to get your donation up to a certain level or, you know, you're not going to get that one. We'll send you the, you know, really inexpensive one. And then what? By 
doing that marketing program, oh, we're a nonprofit. So they come to the federal government and say, we're a nonprofit, so you're not getting any tax money out of us. Okay. You know, our company is a tax paying organization. We pay taxes. We pay taxes for our employees. We pay taxes on whatever money that we happen to make. And so this is what goes on with CPG. So I didn't like the, what I believe to be a fraudulent model of saying, this is free except with your donation, which means it's not free. I don't consider that to be a fair representation, okay? And so it's just a matter of weighing the scales justly, all right? So now you know what our business model is. Now to love mercy, what does this mean? How about forgiving one another? Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody ever, ever heard of forgiving one another? I mean, if we sit around and we say to ourselves, you know, Jessica, I'm looking to meet some new people. Why do you want to meet some new people, Steve? Because I want to take a couple of people down. You know, that I want to meet that person over there for purposes of taking that person down. Really? That's what your life is about? Taking somebody else down? Why isn't your life about exalting other people? Why isn't your life about forgiving other people? Why isn't your life about extending mercy to other people? Why don't you have a hand over to help someone up instead of a hand over to smack somebody in the face? How do, you, how do you call that mercy? You know? You know, uh, the other day I put out a video, a live feed on Facebook uh, called True Forgiveness and what it looks like to a Eastern mindset versus a Western mindset, which is just to ask for, uh, you know, to, to basically, you know, satiate someone's anger, like you said, because I have, uh, you know, I have offended you and somebody come and say, I'm sorry. And then, but I remember my daughter saying one time, well, if you're really sorry, mom, just stop doing that. <laughs> and so basically what she was saying, Dr. Pigeon is change behavior is, is better than you're sorry, right? So it's the true sign of, of repentance is change behavior. But what's interesting, Dr. Pigeon is in the Eastern mind, forgiveness really means, um, covering a debt. And so, and, and it really is a position of a person who is, and realizes that they are full of wealth. They, they are wealthy enough to say to you that, hey, we're going to use financial terms here, but hey, you owe me $10,000. And instead of me taking you to court to get that money because you refused to pay me, I'm saying to you, it's okay. I'm not going to pursue you. I'm not going to pursue charges against you. I'm going to release you from that debt because I have a lot. I have more where that comes from. However, I'm not going to let you do it again, but I'm going to release you from that debt. Forgiveness really is being able to stand in a position of wealth and say, hey, I choose to forgive you. Or I choose to release you from that debt because we ourselves have been released from our own debt, knowing that the penalty for sin is death. So there is a penalty. There is a price that we pay um, as we do our own will, like you said. And when we do our own will, which is sinning or which means to transgress. So when we're transgressing, the penalty, the price that we pay is with our own souls. We will die. The, the, there's this, this finale uh, that comes with our desire to do our own will. So we've been forgiven much. We've been atoned for, which means covered. And like he says, you know, when you go out to go eat, and say, oh, I'll cover the bill, I'll cover it. Well, it's interesting because this word kafar or tone is what love does. And the word says that love covers or atones for many debts, many transgressions. And again, we see a banking term being used when Yahusha says that he has reconciled our debt. Well, that word reconcile is a banking term, again, stating that if you have 
every month, you know, you have this, the checkbook, I don't know if people use them anymore, but a checkbook and you write on the top, the principal balance that you start off with $3,000. And then you go and you, um, purchase something. So you are taking away from that principal debt. Well, at the end of the week or at the end of the day, you go and adjust for whatever it is that you spent. And what you're looking for is you want to make sure that you have enough principal to cover that debt, to cover whatever it is that you have paid or accrued. And so that's exactly what sin is, that we will forgive each other's debts as our debts have been forgiven or reconciled, covered because of the principle, that principle being love. And so I, the way I see it, that's the way I see it. So when I'm saying to someone, I'm a benefactor and you're a beneficiary, if you sinned against me, if you transgressed against me, you know, there's two types of forgiveness, Dr. Pigeon. You can specifically forgive because you choose to forgive, but then you also have to forgive from the emotional position. Whereas in fact, you came in like a fox and spoiled the vine, right? Songs of Solomon says that, catch me the little foxes for they spoil the vine. Doesn't mean that it didn't hurt my field. It doesn't mean that you didn't damage my property. It doesn't mean that I don't have wounds as a result. That actually takes time. You have to learn to process that pain and perhaps give it to Yahuwah and acquire some wisdom. But you can say to the person, when you know your position, you're talking about restoring the soul, when you know that you are truly wealthy and capable of forgiving, that is relinquishing somebody's um, responsibility to you, you release them. You're actually saying, look, I know that you spoiled the vine, but it's okay because I have heirloom seeds. I have a, a, a plethora, like, don't worry about it. I can replant. It's going to take time. And that's what's difficult but I can rebuild, I can replant, I can keep going, I can endure. Yeah, and then we who are in, we who are of the kingdom always have heritage seeds. We Amen. always have the mercy of Yah. We always have his provision. We always have his comfort. We always have his safety net where he is going to place us. He isn't going to forget his children, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances, he will not. And so, yeah, to love mercy, to love justice, to love mercy. And as as it says in the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive my transgressions as I have forgiven those who have transgressed against me. That's right. If you have not forgiven, you will not be forgiven. You must forgive. And anybody, you know, you, you know, when you study psychology, they tell you that forgiveness is a big part of it. Because by not forgiving, you're harboring that in your own heart. You're harboring that, you know, you're harboring all that, uh, all that hatred, that venom, that bitterness, whatever. That's where you're harboring it. And you have to let go of that because that will kill you. I mean, you can not forgive somebody who died 25 years ago, right? And it's not going to do anything for them, whether or not, if they've been dead for 25 years, whether you forgive them or not, does nothing for them. But in the meantime, your lack of forgiveness in your own heart is just murdering you. It's eating you from the inside out, right? Luke, Luke 747 says, therefore I tell you, and this is regarding the woman who chose to take her, her alabaster, her oil, her very expensive perfume, and to anoint Yahusha with it. And uh, he says he's in defense of her. And he says, therefore I tell you, because her many sins, her many, her she's she was impoverished by sin. Um uh, she was indigent. She was bankrupt. And therefore, her many transgressions, her many debts have been forgiven. She has loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. So that again, we see that love covers a kafar. It covers 
the multitude. It covers that debt. And again, when we choose to stand in the position of a benefactor, that's really what it is to say that I have it in me to forgive. And this is why I think they persecuted Yahusha as well, the Sanhedrin, when they came against him. So who do you think you are forgiving sins? Only Yahuwah can do that. You know, and he was he was really doing something because who was he? He came from Nazareth. He was nobody. He was Mary's you know, kid. And, and they're saying, who is this, this poor man? He has no right to forgive sins. Only we, the pomp and pious, can do such things. We sit in high places. We wear fancy clothes with gold trim. We are the wealthy, right? But they were again. They were they were mis they were misinterpreting what true virtue was and what wealth was. And the wealth that we have is this. We could tap into the wealth of forgiving because we've experienced it. We've experienced the loving kindness and compassion of Yahusha, uh, of Yahusha and His mercy, His rachem, His chesed, His womb of mercy, where He pours out upon us, Doctor Pigeon, and in return. We can recall that mercy. We can recall that compassion and extend it towards our brother. Forgiving someone is really, truly a position of someone who is wealthy, who understands that they can tap into that, that resource at any given time and cover someone's debt. Yeah, that's right. And I forget where it is. I, I was given to me the other day in the Psalms, or excuse me, in the Proverbs, but it said, it said something to the effect that uh, the rich man thinks he is rich and has nothing. And the poor man thinks he is poor, but has vast riches. Because you have the riches of the wealth of the faith, because you have the riches of the faith, of, you have the you have the body of Mashiach, you're in the body of Mashiach, you have this pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh. I mean, which would you rather have? Gold-plated toilets or being completely full of the Ruach HaKodesh? It's just a question. Amen. Which would you rather have, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's take a look at developing your belief. Now, this word here is pistis, but oftentimes you'll see in scripture the word faith. We use the word belief because we think belief is a little bit better, right? And so when you're talking about developing your, your faith, developing your belief, what does this mean? It means to develop your moral conviction, okay? You're in, in, believing in the truthfulness of Yah, especially reliance upon the Mashiach for salvation. It's the constancy in such profession. It's the assurance of your belief. It's your faith. And most importantly, it's your fidelity to this belief. All right? Now, we used to say, talk the talk and walk the walk, right? Walk the talk. And this is what integrity is. So we're going to talk briefly a little bit about morality, ethics, and integrity. And let me, so just let me give a briefing on it right now. You know, morality is what you do. You know, it's the mores or the mores of a society. Now, I'll give you an example. Let's just take this quick, quick example. The speed limit on the Southern California Highway is, I think, what, 65? Nobody, but nobody does 65 on the freeway in, in L.A. Everybody's doing 75, except when they're stopping a traffic jam. So the, moral, so the moral practice is 75. The ethical practice is the posted speed limit, 65. We, the legislature, thought about this. We decided the best speed for LA freeways is 65. That's the ethical process. The moral process is what you actually do. And you know, if you've ever driven those, you know, and I don't know, I mean, most of the time when I drive freeways in LA now, they're so congested, you can't do more than 10 miles an hour anyway. But back in the olden days, when they weren't so congested, everybody did 75 or 80. And if you tried to get out there doing 55, you'd be run completely off the road. There's no way you could survive it. So 
you have this idea of morality, what the culture actually does, and then you have the ethics, the reason why there are prohibitions or strictures or constraints on the society. Now, I mean, this becomes a big deal. So when people say, well, you can't legislate morality, you most assuredly legislate morality. Every single law that's ever been passed legislates morality. It's going to tell you what the practice of the culture is going to be. When they imposed a 55 mile an hour speed limit nationwide, that imposed a morality on the whole country. And But the underlying ethic was the law that said that. Now, when we talk about integrity, integrity is this business of having something come out of your mouth, blah, 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 blah. Well, I think this, I think that. I have. I believe in this moral code. I believe in this standard. Or I'm a Torah keeper. I'm this. Yak, 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 yak. You have all of this stuff going on, and then you have your walk. And your walk is over here. You know, your mouth is going over here, and your walk is going over here. When this walk equals the talk, what's coming out of your mouth is what you do. Now you have integrity. Okay? If it's not, if you're if you're talking one thing but you're doing another, that's not integrity. That's not integrity. Now, there's variations to this because sometimes you may have high integrity and sometimes you may have low integrity, right? And so this is what it means to, to have high integrity or low integrity, this idea of a moral code and an ethical code and the idea of having integrity is all part of beautifying the soul. So when you're asking yourself the question, okay, I want to build, I want to build my faith. I want to build my belief. I want to build my belief in Mashiach. When you come to believe this, then you have to begin to put more and more trust into what Yah is going to do. Now, and I can tell you, if you're a person who says, well, look, I've been praying for years to see miracles. If you want to see miracles, then you have to get up out of your, out of your house, walk out the front door and toss yourself into the hands of a loving Yah. I mean, toss yourself. You remember, you remember in one of the Indiana Jones movies, he had the step of faith. You remember that? And he's standing on the edge of the cliff and he's looking out there and it's just, he's going to fall. If there's no way he can get around, he has to change his balance to make a step of faith. And he knows for sure, looking with his eyes, he's going to plummet to the earth. And he makes the step of faith because he loves his father so much that he's willing to risk his life with this step of faith, and he makes the step, and Yah provided. There was the bridge that he was able to cross to get to his father. It's a great moral lesson. It was a great moral lesson, a great metaphor for what we're talking about here. And I mean, I could tell you, the, the, the most time I saw the most miracles is when I made my first mission trip to Georgia, and we went blind. We didn't know what to, we, we knew that we were being impelled, not compelled, but impelled by the Holy Spirit to make this trip. We followed his leading. We put our hands and our trust entirely in the Ruach HaKodesh, who led us, who cared for us, who comforted us. We had we opened the mission up. We announced it six months we were going to go. We prepared. We prayed. We used to pray once a week. And in the last month, we prayed twice a week in preparing for this mission. Forty-five days before the mission, the mission council came in and said, your mission's canceled. Canceled. We don't like what you're doing. We don't like anything about it. Blah, 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 blah. It's canceled. That's the way it is. Because one of the guys wanted to move funds into his mission work in Africa. So they canceled it. Two weeks later, the guy who wanted to move the funds to his mission trip into Africa died from a heart attack. And the, the head of the missions council said, who are we to second judge 
what the Ruach HaKodesh is doing where this mission is concerned. So they opened the door. We were $35,000 short of being able to go on that mission trip. And we had four weeks left before we were supposed to be there. By the time we left, we had all 30, in fact, we had $37,000 two days before we left to, go, to make the mission trip. We made the mission trip. And, and I'm, I think my, my diary registered something like 21 or 22 miracles that we saw over the course of that trip. There were so many miracles that happened because we just abandon ourselves into the hands of the Ruach, you see? Now, this is when you talk about, when you say, I, I need to increase my belief, I need to increase my belief. You know, when you're talking about that, sometimes you say, Yah strengthened my faith. And when it, when you say that, he strengthens your face, faith through testing and trial. You claim you love me, you claim you know me, but as it's written in Job, will he still proclaim that if you take this away from him? You've got to keep that in mind, too. So what I'm saying to you is, is that in your heart, you need to give some consideration into trusting Yah more and more and more. In those moments when you're in complete despair, and I know many of you have hit those moments of complete despair. When you hit those moments of complete despair, you remember that he hears, he sees, he holds every tear in your hand. He hasn't forgotten you, and you need to trust in that. Okay? All right. All right, let's talk about developing the virtue, right? Virtue or beneficence. Beneficence, right? What is virtue? It's conformity to a standard of right. It's righteousness. It's conforming your walk with righteousness. That is to say morality. That is to say that what you do conforms with what you say. And this becomes not perfection. You see, this is one of the big things that people trip up on. Oh, you know, I sinned, I failed. James says, if you've committed one sin, you've committed them all. It's the same difference. You have fallen short of the glory of Yah. Paul says, there's no one good, not any. All have are fall short of the glory of God. There's not one who doesn't fall short of the glory. Okay. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But what we're not we're not called to perfection. I tell this to musicians, and believe me, when people hear me play music, they know the last thing I was called to was perfection. <laughs> but you're called to excellence. You're called to, see, there's a difference, okay? Now, I'm just going to share this analogy with you, Jessica, and with our audience here, because when you talk about being called to, to excellence versus perfection, I'll give you an example. American artists routinely, when they get up to play, and you and I can pick them out a mile away. I go to a piano concerto, I go to a violin concerto, whatever I go to hear. And you've got an American pianist up there. All the notes will be accurate. They'll all be accurate. They're, they're probably not a wrong note anywhere. And the piece is flatter than a pancake. There's nothing in it. There's no soul in it. There's no life in it. There's no expression in it. There's no risk in it. There's no chance in it. There's no color in it. There's no glory in it. Nothing. It's just ink. Eh. Then you hear an, an artist come in from Europe or maybe from Eastern Europe who has you know, lived in poverty their whole life in order to be able to perfect this piece. And they come up and express the piece. And it is miles different. And there may be some errors here and there. But I remember hearing Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto with a pianist from St. Petersburg and the St. Petersburg Symphony playing in Seattle. This guy got into the recapitulation in the third movement. And he starts playing. He's playing a nine-foot Steinway. And you could see that Steinway bouncing on the stage, right? That nine-foot Steinway. The passion, the blood, 
was there. It was there in the music because he was called to excellence, not perfection. And when you go, when you're contem- when you're contemplating like what you're doing in ministry, like what you do in ministry, Jessica, or what anybody else does in ministry, what worship pastors do in ministry, you're not called to come out there and play every piece perfectly with every note in place. You're called to put all of your heart, soul, and mind into that piece of music to glorify Yah and to do the very best you can. Not perfection, but excellence. And this is what we're talking about. We're talking about moral excellence. You're talking about doing the best you can with the tools you have, with the knowledge you have at the time you have, to do the best you can in front of your creator. And you're going to make mistakes. All of us make mistakes. You know, I was talking to Brad today. I said, you know, Brad, wouldn't it be nice if you had never shot your mouth off at all five years ago? Given the knowledge that you have today, what you knew five years ago, have you learned anything in five years? Yeah. Were you ever wrong five years ago compared to what you know now? Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it have been nice if you'd had 100% of the knowledge you have now five years ago so that you would have never made a mistake? Yeah, I guess it would be. But, you know, you're not called to perfection. You're called to excellence. There's a difference, okay? And, of course, beneficence is the acts of kindness and charity, and we're called to that, too, and we're talking about goodness. We're talking about kindness and charity. I mean, you can see it. You see people trained. This is one of the beauties, actually, of the American church, is that the American church has been trained in kindness and acts of charity. I mean, there's no question. For many, many years, we were the most charitable nation on earth, giving billions of dollars in private charity around the world. And I don't know if we're still doing that. But we did that for decades and decades and decades. There was nothing like America forgiving because we figured if we gave a lot of money, it would cover up our sins. I'm just kidding. But (laughs) you know what I mean? Okay. How about gentleness? We see that Mashiach was gentleness. How do we develop gentleness, right? Well, gentleness is, again, moral excellence. It's a character or demeanor of kindness. Now, I mean, you can, you know, when you go to the supermarket, right, and you get up to the counter, blah, 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 blah. Have you got any coupons? No, I don't have any coupons. Just ring me up. Right? You can do that. You could snap at the gas station attendant, right? You could snap at the barista when you're getting coffee. Why are you so slow? And then if you really want to have a good day, go, when you get to the pharmacy, rip your pharmacist's head off for having to wait there in line. Okay? That's always a good one. Let's talk about it. How about some kindness? How about a smile? How about a good story? How about some gentleness? How about recognizing that the person that's working there may have a life of suffering that went into that, and maybe they're clinging to that job with their fingers going down the side of a cliff, right? And that maybe they're burned out. Maybe maybe their life is wrecked. Who knows what the story is? But can't you come to that person with gentleness and kindness and a smile and uh, address them that way instead of ripping somebody's head off with a bad attitude because you're cranky today and you feel like taking it out on somebody. This is developing gentleness. 
The way I see that too uh, is also expectations. If we if we look at this from another perspective, the expectations that we have of others. Um, we know in Galatians it says that we are to carry one another's burdens. So sometimes our expectations of people um, can be a burden on them. What we expect others, uh, the level in which we expect them to perform in order to satisfy us or in order to appease us. Um, and some, sometimes it's unrealistic and it can be cruel or burdensome, which is really what they have done uh, to interpret the law of Yahuwah. They have convinced us and a whole generation, a whole population, that the, the law inscribed for life, uh, to bring forth life, has become burdensome and therefore to, to remove that yoke, to liberate yourself and to pursue efficacy. And so we right. do see that. We do see that lie perpetrating against um, a culture of people who in fact believe that the law is burdensome. So again, what is this meekness Well, and, and this gentleness? Yahushua says, come unto me, all you who are heavy, who are over, overwhelmed, who are burdened by the societal norms, burdened by the cares of this world, burdened by your taskmasters, and I will give you rest. But there's a contingency. He says, come and learn of me, for my burden is easy. My yoke is light. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. So, I, And then it, uh, in Galatians 6, 2, it says, brothers, if someone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with the spirit of gentleness. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Mashiach. Well, some people have found themselves in situations, Dr. Pigeon, in circumstances where they're taken advantage of. But that's, I think, a little bit different. We do have to utilize discretion. We do have to sharpen our discernment, knowing when to carry someone's burden and when to encourage them to build the muscle <laughs> that they right. need. Right. right? Uh, you know, to lift, lift those weights, let that resistance build their muscle, um, right. according to Second Peter. Uh, but uh, again, and the way that I've seen it as well, as well as what you're saying, is that uh, sometimes we have expectations, like for our children, for example. I know that I was a, a strong taskmaster at one point, and it was really fear that was provoking me, Dr. Pigeon, because as a mother of two children, raising them in this world that we live in, knowing what I had gone through myself, not wanting them to stumble or to go the of same course. Way. Sure. I had placed these these burdens on them that it was almost impossible. It was like the weight was crushing him. And when my I remember my daughter many times um saying, Mom, you know, forget it. I can never do anything right. Just forget it. You know, why even try? And when it got to the point, Dr. Pigeon, where she stopped trying, she stopped trying, that is when it really broke my heart. It was several years ago, but you know, it was those teenage years. And she really stopped trying to do anything. She just would go in her room and just flop and you know. And she spoke to me one day and she said, mom, you know, it's just, I can't please you. Like it just seems. And so sometimes that can also be a heavy burden where we, we place those expectations on people and um, yet we wouldn't, we can't, we can't, we can't lift up those burdens ourselves, but yeah, go ahead, Dr. B. Oh yeah. And you know, when you see the kind of attitude you're describing, you often see with people that uh, spend too much time on the computer or with video games and this kind of thing. Because on your video game, you know, you're pushing some buttons, whatever, and you're expecting immediate performance from that screen. And so if you've spent three hours playing, you know, uh, Grand Theft Auto or, uh, you know, I don't even know what these games, what the names of these games are. But, you know, you're playing some of the, one of these games and you have this, I push the button, it does. I push the button, it does. I change this, it does. I mean, it's, you know, you demand that immediate inactivity. And then you go to 
the coffee stand and you're ask, asking the, uh, the, you know, the barista, would you make this? And she might be talking with a friend or maybe she has, is distracted by something or maybe her child calls. And that's unacceptable. You push the button. You perform right now. I asked a question, you respond. There's no time for cognizance. There's no time for human inter interactivity because your expectation is that the people in front of you are gonna act like your computer screen. And th this is a documented study. They've shown that the kind of hostility that has come among college students because of this you know, addicted stuff to social networking and you know, the addicting addiction to, to all this various media online and the kind of performance you're expecting from your cell phone, the kind of performance you expect from Google, et cetera. Then it becomes that kind of expectation from another human being. Now, when you talk about the, the law being burdensome, James calls the Torah the Torah of liberty. Now, I totally mm -hmm. agree with James's James's uh, review of the Torah of liberty. It is the Torah of liberty. What is not liberating is walking away from the Torah and saying, Oh, that stuff is legalism. I'll craft my own laws. Now, if you want to talk about the law being burdensome, let's talk about the United States law. I can tell you, arguably, there's a federal statute out there. Arguably, if you look at that statute and you read it generously enough, if you buy something from out of state or if you sell something over state lines, that could be considered a violation of federal law that could subject you to 12 years in federal prison. Okay, there are laws that the federal government's trying to capture the kind of corruption that goes on in D.C., which is intense, and they're trying to they're trying to you know bottle it and say we need to make that illegal. But by the time they're done crafting the law, they craft the law that captures anybody and everybody. There are many legal professionals that will tell you point blank there is not a single person in this country that isn't in violation of some law, one or another, some law, some way they're in violation of it. And if you rise up into the radar and you get in the crosshairs, you could be one of those in prison. Okay. And this is because we are not a moral people. At least we don't walk with biblical morality. We did when this country was formed. That's why they could create a secular government. We don't now. That's why we have risen up to a state where the law is so voluminous that just printing the law, if I printed it on 20 pound paper, and I took that law and stacked it on top of you, it would crush you to death. Yeah. It would, that's how much law we are under compared to, the, compared to the yoke of Mashiach and the burden of Mashiach, which is so light and so easy, and in its obedience yields liberty. Hallelujah. Yeah, amen. Okay. You know, it's interesting. Again, we're talking about this and then I know you're going to get onto your next one, but we're saying, okay, so how is our expectations? How can we place these demands? Because that's really what it is. The opposite. What is, uh, the antithesis of, uh, uh, hold on. I went into patience already. Hold on. The antithesis of gentleness is these, these high demands, you know, and that's really what the system is. It's, it's got all these supernatural spiritual taskmasters in place to make you the consumer work for your debt to, you know, pay it off. You're going to pay it off. And so there, you, what, you, what we in gentleness, what we can do is remember that we are all frail, that we have a weak frame. And that's really what it is. You know, you wouldn't place the same burden of uh, that you would on a donkey that you would on your, your puppy 
puppy. You know what I'm saying? Like the frame is different. Just think of the frame and think of the fact that our minds, sometimes our minds are weak. Sometimes our physical phys physicality is weak. Sometimes we're emotionally weak. Whatever the case may be, we're ultimately weak. However, knowing that in our weakness, the word says that Yahuwah, his strength is made perfect. Right. It's complete in our weakness. So knowing that we in our own weakness cannot bear up under any burden. However, with the grace, that's what grace is given to us for so that we can actually accomplish what he set out for us to do. It's not so that we can continue sinning, but so that we can do the right thing. That's what grace enables to us, our weak flesh to do. So um, moving on to perfection, but again, gentleness, being gentle, knowing, keeping in mind that we are weak. Yeah. And with the gentleness, you know, sharing a smile goes a long way. Okay. It really does. It goes it really a long does. way. Yeah. Okay. And so another thing to perfect the beauty of the soul is to develop patience. Okay. Develop the ability to be long-suffering and patient. To bear pains or trials calmly and without complaint. Right. You know, your parents always tell you, right, this too shall pass. Right. Hey, how many times have you heard that phrase? This too shall pass. Well, okay, you don't believe it when you're in the middle of it, but this too shall pass. And it's a, a call to patience, long suffering, to manifest forbearance under provoca provocation or strain, to be not hasty or impetuous, but to be steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity. Now, I can tell you, for me, I've been in the middle of this test for this last month in terms of trying to be steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity, and to just kind of, you know, get up and, uh, you know, seek things righteously, seek the righteousness of Yah, stay in prayer, stay on task, do the things that are supposed to be done. And this idea of developing this, you know, macrothymia, this idea of patience and long-suffering, is really something that you were talking about earlier when you brought this passage up out of Galatians. Bear you one another burden. And so fulfill the Torah of, of Mashiach, right? What's it say? Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the Torah, Torah of Mashiach, right? And so when you're talking about this, sometimes you don't, we're not talking about bearing burdens like somebody shows up and, man, my finances are so bad, you got to bear my burden. I mean, I try to do as much as I can where people are concerned. But, you know, uh, there is sometimes it is bearing the emotional burden. In fact, most of the time it's bearing the spiritual burden, the spiritual burden of another. When another's faith is being challenged, when another person goes into a what we call a crisis of faith. You know what the crisis of faith, right, Jessica? You know what I'm talking about, crisis of faith. You know, you, you think you believe, you think you believe, and then something happens in your life and you're asking yourself the question, do I really believe any of this? You know, I've, I've looked at all this horrible stuff that's happening. Can I possibly believe any of this stuff? Right? You have that crisis of faith. And that's the time when a, a moment when your brother needs to come beside you and say, hey, listen, there is plenty to believe in, right? That's the time it's in your crisis of faith that you bear another one's burdens, right? Or how about the people that come into catastrophic loss in their life? You know, the, the, the floor falls out of their life. You know, a spouse dies or a child dies 
or you know they, they get diagnosed with a with a fatal uh, disease that they're going to die from what about those times right do we come by to bear that burden i mean i gotta tell you i had a friend of mine he was my next door neighbor good friend and his wife would come and talk with my wife and they were talking about you know kind of the spiritual life and she said one day she said i'm just blown away i you know i my husband got up in the middle of the night i woke up in the middle of the night he was on his knees praying and he was just completely overtaken with the world Kakodash, and he was just filled and all of a sudden boom he's just like whammo this guy is alive he's just screaming you know alive in the kingdom right and this went on for two weeks and then two weeks later she comes into the kitchen boom he's passed out on the kitchen floor so she picks him up she calls the yard they take him down to the hospital they diagnose him with a massive brain tumor so he is scheduled for surgery they take him in two days later and she's down there and she's preaching the gospel to everybody on the floor in this hospital one of the most atheist hospitals in town she's down there preaching the gospel and he has this brain surgery and he's home in two days now in those two days they told him they said look this tumor is going to come back you know you got about two years maybe two and a half years but this tumor is going to come back and in that uh in that two and a half year period he preached this magnificent gospel i mean magnificent gospel and place to place he would go and he would preach this gospel in the face of death and so i went up to see him and it was three days before he died and he couldn't get out of bed anymore you know so i went up there and i said dave i said you know how's it how's it going he said I only have one thing on my mind. I said, what's that? He said, I do not want to let the wrong words come out of my mouth. And I said, David, are you aware of uh, the kind of gospel you preached in this community for two and a half years? The power of your testimony? Do you have any idea what you, the, the, how much faith you have brought into other people's lives by your gospel testimony. You know, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing, you know? And, uh, you know, I count myself as proud to know this guy, David Pyland, who died this way, you know? And it wasn't two years later, a friend of mine came to me and my oldest son's best friend at 18 years old diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so here we go. We went through the whole thing again, you know, and so I went down to see him. His name was Isaac. I love that boy. And I sat down to talk with him and he knew he was dying and he, you know, he'd been through, you know, surgeries and chemo and all the rest of this stuff. And he was down to the last several months of his life. And I looked at Isaac. I said, Isaac, I got to ask you a question. He said, what's that? I said, have you been baptized? He said, no, I haven't been baptized. I said, okay, let's get it done. Let's get the baptism done. And so he went into his mother's church and they did a baptism in his church and his testimony rose up like a brilliant torch among the people who had lost their way in apostasy, okay? His life raised up like a brilliant torch for just that moment, right? For just that moment. So when we talk about 
bearing one another's burdens, right? There are people who in the throes of death and facing death have stepped up to bear the burden of the apostasy and the weakness and the backsliding and the falling away and all of the other things that go into a church that says, oh, life, I can take life for granted. They don't take life for granted. And they come and they proclaim a powerful faith, a powerful faith into that congregation. And so we lose people, you know, they come and they go, right? Life is here and then it's not, suddenly not. But nonetheless, these kinds of, this kind of strength in patience, bearing one another's burdens, sometimes just walking that path straight towards heaven. When you can't see it, it's dark, it's stormy, it's raining, there's thunder and lightning, but you got to make the path and you're leading that path and you're walking that way no matter what. You've, you have borne the burden for those who otherwise would not go. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. It's a good word, Dr. P. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. So, which is why we have to reconsider. Uh, I think it's important and probably more vital than important that we know when we are enduring trials, when we are going, when we're going through the threshing, that we endure with patience. These are not, this is the, the beauty of the soul, that is the redemption of the soul, is being res, uh, redeemed through these virtues. These are the, the, these are the, the diadems, if you will, on the crown of our heart, that it's not these things that we possess in the natural, but the fact that we can actually endure this treachery, because that's what the reality of this place can be sometimes, very treacherous. The sting of death is, is cruel, um, but we know that with our hope in Mashiach and all that he has accomplished for us, that we actually have a better hope, something to look forward to. Too. And with that, I will say that my dad passed away several years ago, two years ago. And um, I was baruked, Dr. P, because Yahuwah had already given me um, an opportunity to serve him in those last days. And I was his healthcare provider for several years. And those years were used to make amends with him and to, to love on him and to serve him with all the capacity that was in me to forgive him, to nurture him, irregardless of his behavior, irregardless of how weak he was in the flesh and how cruel he could be sometimes. But I look beyond all those things. And the most important thing that was before me was that he would be with Yahuwah where we are so that he could join himself to him. And so I served my dad faithfully. In the end, uh, Yahuwah rewarded me with my dad's loving kindness. And it was such a beautiful thing. But what's funny is that I have those thoughts when I think about the sting of death when it came to my dad. Matter of fact, today, Dr. Pigeon, I was considering my dad and I was remembering him and I was delighting. I was thinking of all these wonderful things that I got to experience. And so I had peace. I had shalom because of that. Like you said, the testimony. But it's funny because my brother... My older brother, who did not have the same experience, he still harbored unforgiveness and all these other things that can make you sick. Uh, he messaged me saying, um, ugh, I miss dad. 
just today, the same day that I was thinking of my dad. And he said, I miss dad. And he was crying um, at work. He had to get off the phone and he called me and he said, I can't. I'm so depressed right now. I was like, oh, brother. So I began to speak the word, lift up his thoughts. But then I started thinking, Dr. Pigeon, look at the difference. Because my brother had unresolved issues, un like you said, that unresolved unforgiveness, the bitterness, whatever it was, that when he considered the man that he longed for, loved, it was, it was a sting. But when I did, because I had released my dad from his debt, when I thought of him, I thought of that which was good. I, I was not stung. I had peace of mind. I wasn't shaken. And it was a different experience altogether. So in your uh, slides here, you're talking about building that patience, bearing one another's burden. Um, and so what, what does that patience develop into according to your study here it's it develops shalom or peace of mind it does develop shalom and peace of mind and you've you've really given a great example of it right there jessica is that when we talk about this peace of mind i mean where do we really seek peace right we seek peace with our creator that's where we really seek peace yeah it would be nice to have peace among our neighbors peace among our family but first we have to have peace with our creator we have to be at peace at him who called us into this. And for many people, I mean, you know, Ludwig von Beethoven, when he died, right? Now, Ludwig von Beethoven was such an anomaly because he was the 12th child in a family where all 11 of his brothers and sisters had disabilities, okay? All 11 of them. His mother had congenital syphilis and he's the 12th child. In today's world, he would have been aborted a long time before that. But he wasn't. And here comes Ludwig von Beethoven, this great genius, this great talent. And he begins composing and writing and all this stuff. But because he had congenital syphilis, he was never married his whole life. And then when you get towards the end of his life, this great composer loses what? What's the one thing you can't lose as a composer? Your hearing. You can't lose your hearing. And he begins to lose his hearing. And by the time he gets to the seventh, eighth, and ninth symphonies, he's completely deaf, right? But anybody who knows the music of Beethoven knows that the stuff he wrote when he was deaf is his most phenomenal music, right? Nonetheless, Beethoven dies in his 50s, and on his deathbed, he's shaking his fist at God because he was not at peace with his maker. He was not at peace with his creator, okay? Now, you don't get peace with your creator by practicing religion. Practicing religion, you know, going in and doing the sign of the cross, putting your fingers in the holy water, you know, all these kinds of things, kissing the icon, none of that stuff gives you peace with your creator. What gives you peace with your creator is prayer, is what gives you peace with your creator, and obeying his voice, right? This is what it's what it said in Jeremiah 7.22, where he says, I did ask you to do these burnt offerings when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I ask you to obey my voice. Matthew 28 says, what? All power on heaven and earth has been given unto me, Yahushua HaMashiach. Therefore, go and baptize all nations of the earth in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Now, you see, instead of rebelling with your maker and saying, don't tell me what to do, I got it all figured out, while you're using that to justify your cigarette habit, or you're using that to justify your alcoholism, or you're using that to justify your promiscuity, 
or you're using that to justify your rebellion against your parents, whatever your story may be, but you're rebuking your heavenly father because you have something in mind that you want to do, some excuse you want to make. And so you're at war with the one who loves you. You're at war with the one who made you. You are at war with the one who had you sitting at his feet as his child before he put you on this earth. You're at war with that one. You're at war with the one who has a bushel of gifts and healings and miracles sitting right here, ready to pour into your life. But you won't take him because you're at war with him because you got something in your mind. You have to make peace with your creator. That's Making right. peace with your creator is to know the father and the son whom he sent. You know, I went 12 years knowing the father and not knowing the son. Okay. I was a boy. Oh, don't have me that, that stuff about the son and all that stuff. Forget it. Forget it. Forget it. And finally, I came to understand because it was grace that made me understand, not logic, not reason. It was grace that made me understand the son. And when the son, when the son was shown to me, when he showed himself to me, then I realized what this is all about. The love of Mashiach, the it's love good. of Mashiach, you know, and he is good and his mercy endures forever. Ha'olam. Hallelujah. You know, what's interesting, Dr. Pigeon, is that um, some people, uh, myself, I would be one of those people, um, have inherited. Unfortunately, I didn't uh, rebel against my creator because I understood what I was doing, but I was born in apostasy. I think we are all born in sin, but I was a born, uh, I was born uh, with, I inherited the sin of my forefathers and it was great, deeply entrenched in my being. And there was furrows for days. And so um, I had to, it, what a beautiful thing, but that he would take somebody, you know, so wretched like us, and then he would turn the, take those ashes and again, uh, turn them into beauty. But I remember being mad at Yah because I had inherited these things. And I thought to myself, like, I didn't ask for this, you know, like, the, how is this my fault? If, if I had a choice, I would choose not to do these things. But I couldn't because I was so like, you know, I was so overwhelmed with the burdens that I had received from my parents. I was so overwhelmed that there was nothing to do but to submit, Dr. Pigeon. It was so overwhelming. I had no recourse. So I remember growing up angry and resentful and violent because I could not find freedom. This is why I think that I'm so passionate about serving my king and honoring his esteem because he liberate he was the only thing that can remove those fetters they had been i've been born with fetters all around me and so my point is is dr pigeon is that some people are born into an environment where their parents were drug addicts they learn to become drug addicts and so it's not necessarily that they are choosing to war against their creator however we must know that the flesh wars against the ruach and the ruach is the ruach of elohim given to us uh, i love that word proxy but given to us by proxy and so we receive the ruach to convey or to communicate that newness right that, that that causes us to become a new creature so if in fact you find yourself in a situation where you you did inherit something it is not maybe you you are trying to i know i have a sister-in-law who's tries she has tried for years dr pigeon to become free 
unfortunately, she's tried everything uh, except for fidelity. So she's even tried reading the Bible thinking that it was some sort of remedy. Oh, let me just read these scriptures and then uh, that's a remedy. And I, I try to explain to her, no, it had, there's, there has to be a circumcision of the heart. Mm. Ultimately, true peace, true peace is the byproduct of teshuva, go and sin no more. So those who return to their first love, the one who loves your soul, the lover of your soul, those who return to their first love have a circumcision of the heart. They no longer go the way of Cain. They no longer go the way of their flesh, but they are now being governed by the Ruach and have now found peace in the sight of Yahuwah. This is ultimately what we are marked with when we find peace with Yahuwah. We become pleasing to him. We know, Dr. Pigeon, that we are a pleasure to him, that we are pleasing. We are no longer at enmity with him. Yeah. And you'll know that. And when you and when you get to that position, I'll just share this with you, in my opinion. When you get to that position, that's when you discover that he has a great sense of humor. He has a great sense of humor. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's wonderful, and I think also that when you, when you also when you're at peace with Yah, you know that He cares about us. He put us here. He knows that mankind is fallen. He knows that. He knows that we're in we're that you know our our ruach is trapped in this fleshy fleshy body. He didn't create the flesh to be evil. He created the flesh to be good. But we have the potential to do evil. Every single minute we have the potential to do evil. But we also have the potential to live out a life of goodness inside this flesh. And to do so requires the discipline of doing the things you're supposed to do and not doing the things you're not supposed to do. And by doing that, you create and you perfect beauty in the soul. Hallelujah. And then that leads to, um, we have a few more uh, slides here and we are running out of time, but if we can maybe get to these, the next one you have is joy. And that seems absolutely necessary because joy becomes our strength, right? The joy of Elohim is our strength. And so you're saying that joy is the, the next attribute ascribed to the beauty or the perfecting of the soul. Yeah, exactly. And joy, I mean, you know, the joy is, uh, you know, we're called into this day to be joyful and it's his joy, not our joy. Right. And to find this joy, you know, it's really a great thing. Right. Because when you find the joy, it's what you take joy in this morning. You take joy in the breath you've taken. Right. You take joy in the fact that you're still living. You take joy in the fact that he's called you to his purpose. Take joy in your friendships. Take joy in your relationships. Take joy in your family. Find joy in your circumstances. And. And be strong in your trust. If you're strong in your trust, you can find the joy. And even though the challenges may rise up uh, that are, you know, tremendous, right? They can be very, very tremendous. And you might have to walk through uh, the valley of the rod and the staff. You may, you may be in a situation where your sword is now being put into the fire so that the dross may melt away. I mean, those kinds of things may happen. But even so, take joy in knowing that whatever is intended for evil for you, he is going to convert it to good. It's going to be the best thing in your life. That's what he's going to do for you because he's going to take care of you because he's looking out for you. And even though we may not be able to see that clearly, that's what he is doing. That's what he's doing. He's taking care of us. So the joy of Yahweh is your strength. And he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Right? 
For this day is holy unto our Adonai. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Hallelujah. Dr. Pigeon, have you ever heard of that term? Um, they say, oh, you know, you got to, uh, the, the whole namaste, you know, that Eastern mindset of meditation and being in the moment, connecting to your surroundings, mastering your own thoughtfulness. It's very, very seductive, very alluring, uh, but it's it's really a bunch of hogwash is what it is. But you've heard of that term uh, to, to live in the moment, you know, live in the moment. When I look at joy, when I think about joy, it's the opposite of living in the moment. What it is, is actually looking forward to eternity. And those who, in my opinion, lack true joy is because they do not perceive the resurrection of Mashiach. They do uh, not yeah. realize right? They do not realize that there is life beyond this, that there is more to this. They cannot see eternity. And I remember Yahuwah giving me that perspective, even when I was young in my faith, it was probably one of the first paradigms that he shifted for me and said, hey, look, let me show you eternity because it's waiting for you. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that got me, but anyhow. Yeah, no, 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 it is. Sorry. It is waiting for you. And you know, the thing about eternity, when you're yeah. talking about this, let's just share this just a little bit. Yeah. This whole idea that we're in the second womb. You know, when you're in the womb, you're about to be born. You're in your mother's womb. There's some kids. I'm not going out there. You know, you know, you know, the kids are they're not going to be born no matter what. It's like, I'm not going out there. I'm hanging out of here. Forget it. I'm going to stay here. And finally, the doctor's like, get out. You know, then there's yet another child that's like, I'm ready to go. Boom. And they're out and they're 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 kicking it right. They're ready to go in life. But it's the same thing here. We don't understand that this is the second womb, right? You must be born again. We don't understand this is the second womb. And there is a life after this. We're just going through this process. And so if you, when you don't see the life after this, you're thinking, I don't want out of here. This is what I have. I don't want to get out of here. You know, the, the Ray Kurzweil of the world who want to trap their mind here forever in some robot because right. they don't want that because they don't think there's anything after this, right? That's right. But for the rest of us that know there's something after this, this is something else. I mean, you can sit back and say, look, thank you for giving me this day, whatever this is, however you place me here. You know, look, Yah pulled me out of the pit of the oh, bottom of Sheol. He pulled me out of Sheol. He pulled me out of the pit. He pulled me out of death. Dark. He pulled me out of certain death. And he said, no, I'm going to give you life and I'm going to give you this. And I want you to do this, this, this. So I can complain about my circumstances. Oh, I don't have this. Or what about that? Blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, he gave me life when I wasn't deserving of it. He's given me long life when I wasn't deserving of that either. He's given me mercy when I wasn't deserving of that. He gave me grace when I wasn't deserving of that. He called me into the kingdom when I wasn't deserving of that. He called me into his family. I wasn't deserving of that. He calls me his friend. I wasn't deserving of that. Yeah, yeah the word says weeping endures for the night, but joy arrives in the morning. Again, I know that our circumstances can overwhelm us at times, but we have the wrong perspective. It means that you're looking at the temporal, the finite temporal. It's that within the space-time continuum, which Yahuwah is beyond that. He's outside of the space and time. And so we need to have a revelation. We need to have our minds changed. And we can simply pray specifically asking Yahuwah to give us the mind of Mashiach, a revelation that we have the mind of Mashiach. Therefore, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the arm of the flesh. And then we can begin to see, like Dr. Pigeon said, our position in him. And the 
that death does not have the final say. Again, that is the joy that we can rejoice even though we are suffering, rejoice even in the midst of trials and tribulations. And this should lead to, ultimately, as we conclude here, this should lead to the love, the fidelity. That's really what love is, is your fidelity, your faithfulness to Yahuwah. And um, Dr. Pigeon, uh, you have here John 15, 13. Do you want to read that? Yes. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And this wow. is what it comes down to. I mean, you know, when we talk about it and it's sometimes when I first looked at that, I mean, oh, I mean, yeah, I have to sacrifice my life. I have to die on the cross for my friends. No, it's laying down your life for your friends. And, you know, you do this as a parent, right? You lay your life down for your children. You do. There's some portion of your life that goes away. When you have that child, well, I know I can't travel. Well, now I can't do this. Well, now I can't buy a BMW. Well, now I can't do, you know, there's things that you lay down because you have your children, but there's other things that a person lays down for his friends. And sometimes it's like, okay, I'm not going to be popular, but I'm going to stand for my friend because I believe my friend is right. And so I'm going to tell you, you can't punch him in the face anymore because this is my friend and I'm standing here alongside him. And you know, you lay down portion of your life. Some of your life disappears. You lay that down for your friend. Then there are the people who give the ultimate sacrifice for their friends, guys who died on Normandy Beach, guys who died in Vietnam, guys who died in Afghanistan, guys who died in Iraq, guys who said, I'm going to lay this down for my family, for my friends, and for the people that I know, because I'm willing to put my life at risk for them, for them, right? And so this, these are all very, very important points. And, you know, there was a girl, right, at Columbine. She was the first one shot. And the guy says, you know, do you believe in God? And she had the choice to make with a gun right in her face. And she said, yeah, I do. And he shot her, killed her, right? Uh. She laid down her life for the faith of many, many, many people. You, you know, Dr. Pigeon, you were talking about that movie, um, the documentary, and that when they see us. And what I think of is not only that, you, that, that Yahusha laid his life down for us, um, but I, I, like a natural application is that movie where that young kid, remember the fifth one, the young kid, the one that had it the worst, the one that went to, to adult prison. The other ones went to juvenile hall first, but he went to adult prison. I can't think of his name, but remember he wasn't even on the roster, Dr. Pigeon. He actually went because his friend was, um, what is it called? His friend was um, arrested and he said, well, he said, do you want to go with your friend? He said, yeah, well, I can't leave him. I can't let him go alone. So he went with his friend just to make sure that his friend was safe and he ended up getting charged as well. So he ended up serving the most time and the harshest experience of all, but all because he went to protect his friend. Yeah. And you know, there you have it. And, and let's talk about the person who made the documentary. That person laid down their life for these five kids that otherwise were not known, right? How many people are, are in prison right now that are unjustly there? There's a project that's run by a number of judges up here in Washington. They claim 40% of, of the prison population is wrongly convicted. 40%. That's millions and millions of people. And and so these judges have begun to lay down their lives for somebody, somebody who has no voice. Somebody nobody can say anything about. And this is what love is. This is the love of Yah, is to lay down your life for others, right? Whosoever believes that Yahusha is Hamashiach is born of Yahweh. And everyone that loves him, that begat loves him, also that is begotten of him. 
By this we know that we love at the children of Yah when we love at Yahweh and guard his commandments. For this is the love of Yah that we guard at his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Amen. So in summary, Jessica, what we have been talking about is Galatians 5, 23 through 26. But it. the fruit of the Ruach is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, belief, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law put in place. And they that are Yah that, that are Yahusha have crucified the flesh with the afflictions and lusts. If we live in the Ruach, let us also walk in the Ruach. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another. And so are the fruits of the Spirit. Hallelujah. Perfect. As you ended with that verse, can I end with Second Peter? Second um, Peter verse 1 through, I think it's one through eight, if I may, it says here, and this is just to add to, to complement what you just said. According as his divine power or said, uh, his, his power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Yahusha HaMashiach. I think that is key right there, Dr. P. It says that if those things are being born in us, if we are producing those fruits, right? If those are the byproducts of our faith, the byproducts of our religion, then guess what? We will not be ignorant. We will produce the knowledge of Mashiach. Dr. Pigeon, so many ministries out there, and I won't name any names, but I'm just saying just a plethora of ministries all over are proclaiming that we need to know the corruption of this world. We need to be able to handle the counterfeit in order to distinguish the counterfeit. I think that's a lie. I think we need to handle the true thing in order to distinguish the counterfeit. But here it's saying that as we produce the fruits of the spirit, then we will not be barren of the knowledge of Mashiach. That tells me, Dr. Pigeon, that we don't need to have what does the word say? Turn away our eyes from looking at worthless things. We do not need to focus on those worthless things, the things of this world, in order to have the knowledge of Mashiach. What we need to be focusing on is the virtues ascribed to Mashiach so that we too, and developing our relationship with the Ruach in order to produce good fruit. Yeah, amen to that. And the producing of good fruit, remember we talked about the beauty of the soul. And we talked about this idea of a tree with no leaves. It looks dead, but a tree that is fully leafed, that still has its flowers blooming and is full of, of its fruit. This is something that is that brings glory, that brings beauty. And you see, it's not 
the color of the leaf. It's not the, the size of the tree. It is the functionality of the tree. It's the fact that the tree is bringing forth fruit Tender. that makes the tree beautiful. That's what makes barren. the tree beautiful. And so it's for not those, barren. It's not barren. And so it's like the fig tree that he cursed. Yeah. And now you think about this. There's lots of people out there that look really good. They look like they've got the whole world going on and their life is completely barren. Sepulchres, whitewashed tombs. What did he say? Well, you guys do well to clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. All right, Dr. Pigeon, that is all for tonight. We need to bid our viewers farewell. Dr. Pigeon, is there anything else you would like to include, uh, specifically where they can find you? Can they find more information about the Eth Sefer and where can they go? Sure. I mean, we're very happy with the Eth Sefer right now. We're, we we actually are very proud of the work. I think it's a very good work. You can pick it up at etsefer.net, C-E-P-H-E-R.net. You can also, uh, you can, if you have any inquiry, just send in your inquiry to info at sefer.net. If you have a specific question of me, you can ask me, Stephen at sefer.net. And uh, come on and join us. I've got 300, about 330 blogs up there. There's lots of videos on our YouTube channel at Sefer Publishing Group is the name of our YouTube channel. Come on over there and visit us there. And you can catch us from time to time. And of course, you know, you know, Jessica, the work that we're doing. And mm -hmm. I'm going I'm, I'm to leave it to that. I am greatly blessed by what we're currently doing with uh, with this fellowship, this online fellowship. And I'm very blessed by that, just to let you know. Amen. And so, and so, I want to thank the I want to thank the audience that has joined us tonight for this presentation. Uh, you know, I uh, most of the people I think I, I know many of them, and they're great friends of mine. And and I love you dearly. Thank you for being for being with us during this presentation. And let's just continue to pray that we're going to be able to bring forward the grace of the Mashiach. You know, this business of looking back at the earth and saying, that's wrong with the earth, this is wrong with the earth, that's wrong with the earth. We can do that if you want. But there is so much to concentrate in the kingdom. And, and I think it's very important when we're talking about the fruits of the Spirit to operate without condemnation. If you go and you read my blogs, you're going to see there's not a single name of a single individual anywhere in those blogs that I am condemning. Not one in 330 blogs. There's not one name that I have condemned because I do not believe in condemnation. Right. The world will condemn itself. And I don't believe in condemnation. We believe in extolling the virtues of what's in Scripture. And there's so much to study. There's so much richness. So much. I mean, if you've got a mine over here that's full of gold, why are you going to spend your time over there weeding the desert? Why would you right. do that? You know, but let's right. concentrate on what's in front of us. It's beautiful. beautiful. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. Well, thank you again. I always look forward to this. And anybody's interested in joining our weekly fellowship online, it is um, our Shabbat services where Dr. Pigeon does expound a little bit more. And it's an opportunity for you to get to uh, just to get to engage with him and ask, uh, you know, get personal up and personal. And then also to um, just to kind of fellowship with the rest of us who are like minded. You can email me at crossing over eight at gmail.com the website i'm sorry the email is in the description box there uh, and let us know that you would like to join the shabbat fellowship bayit yash uh, and we will add you to our mailing list dr pigeon i'm going to bid you farewell as uh, as well and the rest of the uh, crew out there thank you once again for your support your prayers are much appreciated 
We bid you shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom.